To rejoice is to choose. It is not a response to our circumstances. It is an intentional choice that we make that exercises our faith. One of the reasons why Paul writes these words the way that he does as a command is because that is how we put our faith into action, by choosing joy, by choosing to focus on God, who he is, and what he has done. But for that faith to be exercised, we must take the step of obedience and choose joy. Choose to remember who God is. Choose to celebrate his goodness and his greatness. The church of Jesus Christ is made up of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. A beautiful blend of cultures, of backgrounds, of traditions that have been united together as the bride of Christ. And one of the beauties that we have in this congregation is that God has brought many of the representatives of those nations, of those cultures and languages, and woven us together as a family. Many of us are here from places where home is far away. And God instructs us as his people to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. And so I think it's appropriate that as we approach this command to rejoice, that we also stand with those who weep. This week, um, my friend Gogo, uh, who's a student here in Prague, who's from Nigeria, um, he wrote to me about what today means for him. It's a special day. And Gogo, where, where are you? Where are you? Gogo. Oh, there he, there he is. All right, this, that's Gogo. All right, I'm going to have you stand back up in a minute, but you, you can sit back down right now. Today, in his homeland in Nigeria, at his home church, today would be a day of a special celebration in honor of his grandmother. In his culture, in his tradition, when you lose a loved one, when they pass away, you will put on your mourning clothes and you'll wear those for several months in honor of their life and to be able to grieve over the loss of their presence. But today is the day when they burn their grave clothes, their mourning clothes, where they would come together and celebrate both in church and later at the graveside and they would take off those clothes and put on white in honor in remembrance of the hope that we have. That our God will wipe away every tear and that our God is a resurrected Lord. He has brought an end to tears. He has robbed the grave. He has conquered death. And he gives us hope. So Gogo can't be at home today with his family, but he can be here with us his family here at ICP. And so I'm going to say just a couple of things that he, he told me about today and about his, his grandmother, Eunice, who's very special to him. He said, in the eastern part of Nigeria where I come from, when a person dies and is buried, 
the relatives of the deceased wear their mourning clothes for six months as a sign of respect to the departed loved one. On the sixth month, the relatives go to church to pray, and after the service, they entertain guests and can either burn the mourning clothes or wear it as a fashion accessory if they choose. In my mother's or grandmother's case, my friends and I will be wearing white to mark the end of mourning. It is also taking place back home, but on the eve of the service. The family will gather around her graveside and pray. The memorial service in the Igbo language, and I know I will pronounce this as well as I pronounce anything in Czech, is called Uru Uchu. Did I even come close? Say it for us. What's it called? Iruchu. All right. Thank you, Gogo. In addition to Gogo, I know that there are many here who you're still feeling very much the weight of grief of the loss of a loved one. You miss their presence. To me, the most beautiful words in all the scripture is the shortest verse. Jesus wept. We have a God who understands the weight and the overwhelming emotions and agony of grief. He understands it so well that our God was willing to step into our brokenness and sin and provide a way of rescue to provide salvation for us. But he also understands that even though we may have hope because of the resurrection, we may have hope because of what he has done, there also is great, weir- we- there is great weight in the loss. And so I just want to ask us to, to stand in honor of those that are grieving, and we want to pray and thank the Lord for their lives, and we want to ask for his comfort to be in our midst. So would you stand? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for the incredible ways you have demonstrated your love. One of the most beautiful ways that you have shown us your love and your goodness is that you have placed people in our lives, loved ones and friends, who have made an incredible impact on who we are and the life that we have lived. So much so that, Lord, when they are gone, we are easily overwhelmed because of their absence. Lord, help us to remember in those times when grief is heavy that the reason why it hurts is not first and foremost because they died, but because they lived. Because you gave us an immeasurable gift in their life. Thank you for blessing us with them. Father, we also ask for comfort for those who are hurting, who need hope, who need encouragement. We ask that you would fulfill your promise that comes here in this passage, that your peace would guard their hearts and their minds. 
We thank you for Gogo's grandmother, Eunice. Lord, we thank you for others who are represented here by loved ones who are, who are missing them, who are grieving and mourning over their, their loss. Thank you for their lives. Thank you for the light and the joy that they brought to each of us. And Lord, we ask that you, the God of all comfort, would surround their families. You would touch them with your presence and with your peace. That you would bring healing in their midst. Lord, most of all, we thank you that you give us hope. Hope that transcends beyond death because of Jesus Christ. Let us remember that we have been given that incredible gift and we live in a world where there are so many that do not have that hope. Remind us, Lord, so that we may be ambassadors of your message, of your good news to those around us. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name for his honor, and we pray them that those who are hurting will be encouraged and strengthened. But Lord, also this day we choose to obey your word and rejoice, not because of the circumstances, but because of who you are. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please be seated. Our passage tells us to rejoice in the Lord always. Now, if I was to read this in the contemporary world version, or, or perhaps I might label it the contemporary self-focused Drew version, it would be rejoice when things are good. Rejoice when I'm successful. Rejoice when someone else recognizes something that I did and gives me affirmation. But you see, that's not rejoicing. In all honesty, that's pride. We are commanded to choose joy in the Lord because of who He is, no matter what our circumstances. Remember, Paul has written this from prison, and his circumstances are dire. There's a great deal of uncertainty facing him, and yet he says, rejoice. In fact, he tells us here to do five things. Number one, we are to choose joy. We are to be intentional to rejoice over who God is and what he has done. Secondly, he tells us to do it again. And I love that because at least in my life, here's what happens. I'll be overwhelmed by a circumstance that I'm going through and my mind is, is on this track where all I can do is think about all the different implications of this problem or of this difficulty, or this, this struggle that I'm having in, in, in a relationship, or um, whatever it may be. And I'll remember these words, and I will rejoice. I will thank God for something. And I'll do really, really well for about 15 seconds. And then after 15 seconds, I start thinking again about the problem. And so Paul wisely writes, Again, I will say rejoice because he knows that at least people like me need to be reminded again and again to get back on the right track of choosing joy in the Lord. 
and trusting who he is. The next thing he tells us, though, is not only do we need to to choose joy in the, the Lord, but that joy needs to have an outward expression in that we are to be gentle. We're to let our reasonableness be evident to everyone. Our choosing of joy has a fruit that bears its life in relationships with other people. In other words, we're to treat others as God has treated us. We're to give grace to others. We're to be kind and reasonable towards others. And fourthly, his instruction here in this passage is to remember that God is at hand. And that is the most important phrase in all of it. It is that truth that enables us to rejoice. It is that truth that enables us to respond with grace towards others, even if they're not responding with grace towards us. And then finally, in this passage, he gives us the instruction to pray in every situation. And we're going we're gonna to focus in on that more next week. But uh, I, when, just as a, a side note on prayer, one of the things that we're going to begin doing here as a congregation is to continue to grow in prayer. We are going to have a, a prayer wing over here. Okay, Underneath the windows that point down over, over here, what we're going to do is... Um, Ed and Mindy Tarleton are going to help, help us organize individuals to pray with you after the service. If there's a need in your heart, if there's something to rejoice over, and you want to share that with another person, and you want to take that together to the Lord, you can do that right here. If there's a struggle that you're having, we want to be able to walk alongside of you and pray and present our requests to the Lord. And so that's going to be available starting today, and we'll have that on a regular basis as just a resource where we walk through um, praying together, okay? So that's going, to be, that's going to be a great thing because prayer is what brings transformation in our heart and our life because it expresses our dependence upon God. So here in this passage in Philippians 4, uh, 4 through 9, we're given an instruction to rejoice, to make a choice. And so, what are you choosing today? When you look at your own heart and life, and you look at your attitudes, what are you choosing? Are you choosing to have a positive attitude or a negative attitude? Are you choosing to focus in on the possibilities that are in front of you or the problems? The opportunities or the obstacles? Do you see the dreams or is your vision of your circumstances so filled with the difficulties that it's hard to see past them? In the same way, are you seeing what God is doing in the hearts and lives of others in a positive way, being gracious towards them? Are you building others up or do we criticize others? Are we giving thanks or complaining? Are we rejoicing or are we rejecting God's presence? One of the greatest challenges in the Christian walk is to remain positive for Christ in a negative, broken, and confusing world. Our attitude shapes the kind of walk with God that we experience, however. We must face the truth 
that much of the stress that both comes into our life and the stress that we cause for others is because of our attitudes. It's because I've not chosen joy. I've not chosen to live as if God is at hand right here, right now with me. And I cause stress for others as well as stress for myself. Many of us need an attitude adjustment. And, and this passage of Scripture is so practical. And as we'll look at next week when, when we think about our thought life, it helps us reorient our life to bring it in alignment with God's Word and with the truth of God's presence. But it begins with thinking about how we're thinking and the choices that we're making in our attitudes. If I leave it to my own devices, I will not think God-oriented thoughts. I will think selfish thoughts because I am a sinner. And life is about me until I remember that it's not. We have to choose what we focus on. It's an interesting illustration in, in that both hummingbirds and vultures fly over the desert, but they focus on very different things. As a vulture or a buzzard flies over the desert, it is looking for death. It is looking for something that has died that it can feed upon. But a hummingbird, as it flies over the desert, is looking for life. It's looking for the flowers that are blossoming there in the soil that, against all odds, have, have bloomed. And there it will find nectar and life. In many ways, the same thing is true about us. We will find what we are looking for in what we choose to focus on our thoughts, and our attitudes on. And God instructs us to rejoice. To rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. The Lord is at hand. So we choose joy. And we choose to live as if he is present. Now this little phrase, the Lord is at hand, has been the one that has just captured my heart as I've been reading through these very familiar verses recently. What does that mean? The Lord is at hand. Well, we certainly know that God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. And we know in our minds that if the, the Word of God tells us, if we've trusted Jesus Christ as our Savior and as our Lord, that he has placed his Holy Spirit in us as a guarantee, as a deposit. Therefore, everywhere I go, God's Spirit goes with me. Now that is both incredibly encouraging and incredibly sobering. It is encouraging because I have this assurance that God loves me and, and that he cares so much about me and about you that he was willing to to unite himself with us. That is absolutely amazing that the God of the universe who is perfect and holy, the creator of all things, would choose to take up residence in us. And he joyfully does so. It's also sobering to think about that because sometimes 
where I go, both in my thoughts and in my actions, is not in a place that is focused on remembering that God is with me. My sin is an offense to God. And I, it's easy to remember that I'm, as, a, as a young man, one of the illustrations that helped, helped me solidify that truth was walking into a, a convenience store, a little Potravini, close to where I would go every, every day. And as I would walk into the, to the little store to get um, my Mountain Dew in the morning because I don't drink coffee, um, so I would go and I would get my Mountain Dew, and to get to where Mountain Dew was in the refrigerated section, I had two choices. I could go past the cashier and take a slightly longer route and get to where the, where the drinks were, or I could take the shorter route that went right past all the magazine covers that were on display. And for me, that choice of which way I went was incredibly important. Because if I chose to go past the magazine covers, I would almost always get distracted at least for a second. Because I would see things displayed there that I didn't need to see. I didn't need to think about. I had to make a choice, even in walking into the store, to remember that the Lord is with me and that I didn't want to walk the way that would possibly distract me and lead me down a trail where sin would become easy, at least in my mind. Maybe it's only a thought, but I want it to stop there. In fact, I don't even want it to start, so I choose a different path. That's true in every area of our life. We have to make choices based on the fact that God is with us. Now, there's another side of that. Because here in this passage, as we looked at over the last couple of weeks, Paul says that his life goal is to make Christ his own because Christ has made him his own. There's two sides of the uniting that's very important for us to grab a hold of. Yes, God has chosen to unite with us, but also he has chosen to unite us with him. The scripture tells us in Colossians that even now we are seated with Christ, and where is Christ? He is seated at the right hand of God the Father. He is in authority. He is in control. That's the reason why we can rejoice. But we need to recognize that, that Jesus, even though he is omnipresent, he is also bodily present at the right hand of God because he is the resurrected Lord. He took on flesh, took on form as a human, being fully God and fully human, and his resurrected presence is seated at the right hand of God the Father in the throne room. And the scripture tells us that we are united with him. Now when I think about that, it adds a whole nother level to, um, to wonder in my heart and my mind that God has, in, has not only chosen to be with me here, he's chosen me and you to be with him there in his presence right now in the holiness of his throne room. That's why Paul, in the letter to the Philippians, is urging them to make it 
their own, to understand who they are in Christ, that they have been transformed and that he is remaking us in his image and therefore we should be conformed more and more to his likeness. There is comfort because the scripture tells us Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's our hope. That's the reason why we can face uncertainty, even the uncertainty of our own death with confidence because of who Jesus is and what he has done. But also, there is us in Christ, the power of transformation. Remembering who we are in him and who he is and where he is right now helps us to live a life that honors him. Oftentimes, we look at holiness as a burden. It is not. God wants to transform your character, your actions, and your behaviors to be like his because that is where life is found. That is where we come, become fully who he created us to be, transformed. That's why in his word, he gives us instruction about how we are to live, the relationships that we are have, the parameters for those relationships. He gives us instructions about our actions and our attitudes, and he says, here's how I want you to live because this is where you will find life in me. He calls us to be obedient so that we can become who he created us to be and saved us to be. Don't look at obedience and holiness as a burden. It is a gift purchased at the price of God. At Jesus' sacrifice, you and I could never earn it, and yet he has freely given us his own. He simply now calls us to live as if it is true, as if he has given us that. It should change us. Holiness is becoming like Jesus, and it makes us complete. In the Bible, Holiness is both what we already are and what we are called to become. It may sound strange, yet this is how God has always interacted with his people. He set Israel apart, which is what holiness means. It means that we live as if we're set apart for God. He set Israel apart as his people and then called them to be holy. He repeatedly reminded them that his choice of them was not based in any way upon their moral fitness. Rather, God said to them, I have set you apart, now live like it. I made you holy, now be holy, because I am holy. I have redeemed you and set you free, now go and live as free people, not as slaves. It is done, now do it. We are declared holy so that we might become holy. To live as if the Lord is at hand. See, when we understand that, it is much easier to choose joy because we realize that God, who is absolutely sovereign, absolutely perfect, and filled with immeasurable love, is with us. I can choose joy no matter what my circumstances, no matter what I'm going through. So let me encourage you to simply ask the Lord, what is he telling you to do right now? Is there an aspect of your life where he's saying to you, I want you to rejoice and I want you to turn that over to me 
I want you to turn around from the way that you've been going and trust me because I know what is best for you. I want to give you life to the fullest. We are united with Christ. And therefore, we either choose to rejoice or we choose to reject his presence. You see, when I do not rejoice in my circumstances, subconsciously I am rejecting the truth that God is with me. I am choosing to live as if I am on my own instead of indwelled by God. Puts a different light on it when we think of it in those terms, doesn't it? Because we are making a choice to either rejoice over who he is and what he has done or to reject that and try to be in control ourselves. As humans, we are not able to control our circumstances, but we do control how we respond to them. The action of rejoicing is allowing your life to be filled with the supernatural joy of heaven because God is at hand. It's allowing God to fill your life with his presence and allow his life to flood our souls. So God is telling us to make choices. And if we back up just a little bit in this passage, back into chapter three, verse 17, he gives us some practical instruction about how we are to live a life of rejoicing. Look at chapter three, verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me. He says the same thing at the end of the verses we just read. So these are, he, this is all the same subject that's put together here. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, because of that, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. So we have to ask ourselves, are we choosing to reside as citizens of heaven? As if that really is our homeland. That's where we belong. That that's what our passport, in essence, says is I am a citizen of God's kingdom because I have chosen to believe in Jesus Christ and trust him as my Savior and Lord. My allegiance is to him. And therefore, my mind will be set upon his purposes, his will, and his ways. Am I choosing to reside as a citizen of heaven, or have I immigrated into the world with my mindset? It's interesting here that in this context, Paul is warning against false teaching and false belief coming into the church. When you look at the letters to the churches, every one of them warns against apostasy or false teaching. And that's what he's doing here. He's saying we need to be careful because there are those who have a worldly mindset and it is their destruction, but it also threatens the life 
of God's church. It can creep in. It was an issue for every church in the New Testament. Therefore, we have to guard against it today as well. We need to make sure that we're aligning what we believe fully with what the Scripture teaches. We must all examine our hearts and humble ourselves before the Lord to see what is true and according to His Word. So He says for us to live as citizens of heaven. Now when we see this word citizen in the Greek, it is the word... This is dangerous territory. It is the word politehemu. It's the word we get politics from, okay? I don't know about you, but my particular home country, politics are not very pretty right now, okay? I, I won't comment on them, but they're ugly. And, you know, and you begin to wonder, how do we get here? But he's saying we are to live above politics, We are to live as citizens of heaven. No matter what happens in our earthly homelands, we are to live as if God is on the throne because he is. And as a citizen of heaven, we need to accurately represent Jesus Christ to the world around us. As a citizen of heaven, we must stand firm against the tide of a fallen culture and a worldly mindset. As a citizen of heaven, we are to live in light of our coming transformation in Christ. We are to live as if he is changing us. Live in obedience with him. And the first step is to rejoice. To rejoice in the Lord. In fact, he sets up this passage to help us understand that rejoicing is not only good for us, rejoicing is the first step in protecting us from false teaching, in protecting us from having an attitude that is distracted. The rest of the verses where he says, where he talks about what we are to think about, it is all based upon the foundation first of choosing to rejoice, of choosing to say, Lord, I praise you for this. Lord, I thank you for what you have done. Lord, I exalt you for who you are. We are to rejoice because rejoicing changes us and it is an exercise of faith. So therefore, the best thing that we could do would be to have the pastor shut up and for you to rejoice. So what do you have to rejoice over? What is it that you have today where you can say, I am thankful for God because this is who he is and this is what he's done? Are you thankful? Do you have reason to rejoice? Then, that's good. Work with me just a little bit here. This is the audience participation part, okay? What do you have to rejoice over? Our salvation. What else? Family. Yeah. Health. What a gift from God. The church. He's brought us together. Finally, hallelujah. That can be a huge endeavor. Sons and daughters. Yeah. What else? All right, 
all the, all the basic things he's given us. Scripture. Yeah. Yes. So, our relationship with daddy. Isn't that good? Friends, what do you have to rejoice in the Lord over? Music. See, here's the thing. When we start thinking about these items, when we start listing out what we have to be rejoiceful over, it changes our own hearts and attitudes because it's helped us remember who God is. So what's something else that you have to rejoice over? Eternal life. There's no greater thing to rejoice over than that. Someone else. We are alive. Today is a gift we have been given. Freedom. Freedom. Absolutely. His word. You see, that's the promise. This is the beauty. What does he say? Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. And then what does he say? At the end of that, he says, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Here's what I want you to picture. It's like God is saying, where I want you to live is in the castle of my presence. So we think about Prague Castle, the biggest castle in the world, and, and we think about you know, the, the bridge there on the, on the north side that, that goes across the, the cavern, which I'm sure sometime back in history was a, was a moat, and there was a drawbridge there, had to be, because every castle has to have a drawbridge, at least in my mindset. And, and so we think back on that, and, and what he's saying is, is when you rejoice, it opens up the drawbridge and allows you to walk right into my presence. And there, behind the safety of the walls of where I dwell, you will find a security, a joy, a peace that is absolutely undefeatable. That's what this passage means. He says, when we rejoice, we enter into his presence and he will surround us. With his, with his peace. Just as the walls of the castle surround St. Vetus's cathedral, he will surround us with his might. But it requires us to choose joy. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to sing a song um, that is an expression of rejoicing, good, good father. We're going to thank God for who he is. And ask him to begin to transform our thought life. To teach us to rejoice in all circumstances because he is present. So would you pray with me and then let's practice rather than preach. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you that you are a good, good father who is with us when we weep, when we are broken, when we are hurting, when we are in pain. 
but you are also a God who gives us life, who gives us health, who gives us family, who has given us the greatest gift of all. You gave us yourself in your son to come and die on a cross for us so that we might be rescued from sin and have a relationship with you. Thank you for who you are. Lord, would you teach us to rejoice? May that become the defining quality of our lives. May that become the the defining mark of us as a church, that we remember who you are and praise you for what you have done. Lord God, would you speak to each and every heart that's here today? Lord, there are those who need to trust you. And today, maybe, may it be the day where they call upon the name of Jesus and Lord, they discover just how good you are because they trust you with their salvation. For others who are hurting, who are broken, who are disappointed, Lord God, would you enable them to praise and rejoice and Lord, we ask you to fulfill your promise to then surround them with your peace. Remind them how much you love them. And Father God, the truth is, even if you didn't offer such a beautiful promise, we have every reason to rejoice in you because you are God and that is reason enough. But you are so much more. You are our good, good Father. We love you. In Jesus' name. Amen.